Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning, and it is really good to be in the book of First Peter. So let me invite you to turn there. First Peter chapter 1. If you're using the blue Bible in the pew in front of you or under the seat, uh, you can find this on page 1116, 1116. So we are looking today at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be focusing on verses 6 to 9, but I'm actually going to back up and read starting in verse 3. It should sound pretty familiar after hearing Phil's prayer, but that's a good thing. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the greatest tests of the quality of something is what I like to call the even-though test. So anything can promise to work, right? Or anything can promise to do what it's supposed to do when the circumstances are perfect. But will it work even though it's subjected to harsh conditions? We see this all the time in commercials, but just take one example. Take a phone. So you, you got your phone, and you're looking for a phone, and sure, it looks great on the commercial. It's doing all kinds of cool stuff. And, or you go to the store, and there in the store, you're amazed at all the things it's doing where it's nice and safe. But will it work even though you drop it on the ground over and over and over? Will it still function the way it's supposed to even though it fell into the pool? Will it still do all those cool things even though your child used it as a toy hammer to pound on the wall and then try to color on it. We want to know these things because we know that's what life is really like. It's not just a hypothetical interest. We know that's what's going to happen. And so I need to know, will this thing actually work even though it's going to face all these things? We don't want something that merely works or looks nice when everything's perfect. We want something that can hold up to the even those of life. And it's the same way in our walk with God, isn't it? We don't want a joy in Him 
that only works for an hour on Sunday morning. Or only when we're having our quiet time. And just the right chair with just the right coffee and just the right book and lighting and setting. We don't want a hope or a peace that's only true as long as life is going well and things are good. Because we know that's not how life is. We know how hard life can be. Real life is filled with trials and hardships and a hope in God that only lasts as long as everything's going my way. (laughs) It's no hope at all. We need a hope and joy and confidence and peace that are true even though the hard times come. Even though the worst happens. Even though our plans fall apart and our dreams are shattered. Will our hope in God last even though those things happen? And have you ever noticed that our Bibles don't shy away from acknowledging all the hard things that we'll face in this life? I don't know where the idea of this stereotypical fake happy Christianity comes from, but it's not from the Bible. Because the Bible instead lays out all the possible hard things we might encounter, and then it promises that what God gives us will last even though we face those things. Let me give you just some samples. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 37 talks about the righteous man and says, Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Psalm 27, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Psalm 138, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Or how about this promise? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or this hope from Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That word though is a powerful word. Because it acknowledges the reality of hard things. But it means that even when those things we fear happen, or even when suffering comes, what we have in the Lord is still true. And that's what Peter wants to remind us of this morning in these verses. That's why I called the sermon title today, Even Though. Because I want those words sticking in your brain this week and in the rest of your lives that what we have in God is true even though. So our outline today is simple. we got three points. You can throw those up if you have it. We rejoice even though we suffer. We love Jesus even though we haven't seen him. We trust Jesus even though we don't see him now. So let's, start, let's go through these. In verse 6, Peter starts us off by saying, in this you rejoice. So the first question, if you're Reading your Bibles well should be, in what? What's the this that's the source of joy for these Christians? 
The answer is, it's everything he just talked about in verses 3 to 5. It's God's great mercy. It's God's causing us to be born again. It's our living hope. It's our indestructible inheritance that's being kept by God. It's God's guarding us by his power through faith. And it's our sure salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And all of that, all that that entails, Peter says, in that you rejoice. But what we see next is that this joy isn't some simple or shallow joy. It's not a fragile, fake smile, put on a happy face joy. Instead, this joy is deep and invincible. Why do I say that? I say it because of that powerful word that comes next. He says, in this you rejoice, though. Though what? Though you've been grieved by various trials. And that little word, though, is what makes our joy invincible. See, it's not that hard to be happy, right? It's not hard to be happy, I should say, at least when everything's going well. At least when life is easy, right? If you ever meet someone and they have everything going their way, odds are they're happy. They're just like, yeah, it's easy to be happy. But when trials and suffering come, they grieve us. And when they do, cheap and flimsy joy is easily destroyed. Many people's joy is stolen by the, the what-ifs. We're talking about the even those, but there's the what-ifs. What if my plans for life don't pan out? What if I do lose my job? What if I don't get that job? What if I never get married? What if my kids don't turn out the way I hope? What if my car breaks down again? What if I can't pay the bills? What if someone I love gets sick? What if the unthinkable happens? For many people, when those what-ifs actually take place in their lives, it destroys their joy. But Peter's reminding us here that in Jesus, we have a joy that survives even though those things happen. As Christians, we rejoice not because we don't face trials, but even though we face trials. So this morning, as we work through this, I want to ask you a question up front so that you can hear the sermon a certain way. I want you to hear it through a filter, so to speak. I want you to fill in the blank in your life. What do you need to put in the even though category? In other words, what trials are you facing right now? Big, little, doesn't matter. What are you facing right now that there's a temptation to say that that might be something that could rob my joy, my hope, my peace? Or if you're not facing, if nothing comes to mind now, what's on the horizon? What could you see as a potential threat, a potential trial? So when we say throughout this morning, you're going to hear the two words, even though, a lot. And so I want you to hear them in light of the thing in your life. So that when you say even though, it's, Even though the interview goes horribly. Even though I don't get the diagnosis I want. What is it for you? What goes in the even though category? Okay, so let's let's continue on here. And in verses 6 and 7, what Peter tells us is he tells us five things about the trials we face. Okay, and this I found I find this section so helpful for me. Five things. First, he says, our trials 
are brief. They're brief. Do you see that there? He says they're for a little while. Now, some of, I might have lost some of you already. Some of you might recoil at this because some of you may be walking through trials that have lasted for years. A chronic illness, a strained marriage, a challenging family situation. But it's drug on and on and hasn't gone away. And you wonder, how in the world can Peter say that? For a little while? Does he have any idea what my trial looks like? Well, Peter can say that because he's seen the bigger picture. He knows that as those who belong to Christ, if we add up all the days, months, and years that we walk through trials, it doesn't even come close to how long our joy will last. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us the same thing. He says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying there's no even, there's no use putting them up next to each other. They're so ridiculously out of proportion. What we see here, friends, is that our sufferings may last longer than we think. They certainly will last longer than we want. But they won't last forever. So even if we are grieved by various trials for months or years or decades, in the big picture, they're really just a little while. Because you know what will last forever? Our joy. Psalm 16 says, In God's presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, our worst trials will perish. Think about that. The worst trial you go through will perish. Our deepest sufferings will fade. But our heavenly inheritance never will. For those in Jesus, the worst things that can ever happen to you can only last a lifetime. I want you to think about that. It's not how we usually think, but the worst thing that could ever happen to you can only last a lifetime. But there is a glory and there is a joy coming that will never end. God will spend the coming ages, not days, not years, not millennia, ages, showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's one reason our joy is invincible, because we know that our sufferings are for a little while, but our joy is eternal. Now the second thing Peter wants us to know about our trials is that they're necessary, necessary. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to these two words because these two words radically change our suffering, don't they? What this means, because those two words are there, what this means is that none of our suffering is wasted. Not one moment of your pain is meaningless. 
It's not arbitrary. It's not random. If we're grieved by various trials, God's word tells me they're essential and needed. In other words, without these trials, we couldn't reach our glorious inheritance. They're absolutely critical to our getting there. Romans 8 says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, right? We have an inheritance and we're fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, he's saying there is no inheritance apart from suffering. In the book of Acts, when Paul visited young church plants, To encourage these newer believers, it tells us that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations is how you must enter the kingdom of God. Paul wanted them and wanted us to know that the road to glory is also the path of suffering. They're not two paths. They're one. Our trials are necessary. But that raises the question, well, who says? Who says they're necessary? I don't feel like they are. Our Father does. Our Father who chose us to belong to Him. Our Father who gave us a living hope by giving us His own Son. Our Father who caused us to be born again. Our Father who's given us an inheritance with Him and is willing to do whatever it takes to bring us safely home to His joyful presence. He's the one that says our trials are necessary. John Newton said it better than anyone, I think. He said, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. I love that. Because that means we can rejoice even though we suffer. Because we know that any suffering we face is necessary. Third, our trials are varied. They're varied. It says you've been grieved by various trials. We often overlook, but I think this is important because not all suffering looks the same. Right? Though we all face tribulation... We don't all face the same kinds of tribulation. Therefore, we must be slow to think someone else has it easier simply because they're not facing the same particular trials we do. We don't know what everyone else is facing. But God knows not just if suffering is necessary in our lives, but he knows exactly how much and what kind of suffering is necessary. And even in our own lives, it might look different in different seasons of life. Because what he's saying here is trials come in all shapes and sizes. Peter mentions this because he wants us to know that we can rejoice even though we face trials no matter what kind they are. It's not just true for some trials. It's not just true for the big trials. not just true for the small trials. not just true for this Trials pertaining to your health or pertaining to your marriage or pertaining to your job. It says various trials you can rejoice. This truth is for all kinds of trials. But why? Why are these trials necessary? Necessary for what? That's the fourth thing we see about our suffering. 
It's purposeful. Friends, for the Christian, suffering is doing something. So what's the purpose of our trials? Verse 7 tells us it's so that our faith can be proven and purified. Our trials are necessary to show that our faith is real. It's easy to say we trust Jesus when life is good. But what about when times get tough? Will our faith hold up even then? We know that Jesus himself warned us about the danger of having a false excitement about following him. He told the parable of the sower and one of the kinds of soils he mentioned, he talks about seed that was sown on the rocky ground. Do you remember what he said about it? He said, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself and endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, there was was a lot of buzz. This person, there's something that got them fired up. They were ready to go. But then as soon as trouble, as soon as trials came, they walked away. Many of you have seen this. It's sad and it's tragic and yet it's far too common. People we know who gets, they look all excited about Jesus. They, they look like they're really getting into things. There's this, for a brief flash. But then suffering comes along. Or things get hard. And they, they're out. They leave. And that's one of the reasons that our goal here at Chapelwood is not just short bursts of excitement, but a lifetime of enduring joy in Jesus. Don't get me wrong, we want passion for Jesus. We want bright, flashing, burning passion for Jesus, but we want persevering passion. We want an even though kind of passion and joy. And one way our joy and our faith is shown to be real is by going through trials. So when we go through suffering, it gives us an opportunity to show and see we really do trust him. Like we've walked through it and on the backside of it, we can look back and say, I'm still, I still love him. I still trust him. I believe what he says is true and I made it through. Our faith is not simply a fair weather faith. It's been tested and shown to be genuine. And Peter says these same trials not only prove our faith, but they purify it as well. And he uses this picture here of gold being tested in a fire. So when you have the piece of gold, you guys know this, you put it through the flames and it burns up all the impurities. All the stuff that's not real gold. Because you don't want that. So what you're left with after it's gone through the fire has been tested and proven to be authentic. And Peter says that's how God is using trials for the life of the believer. The fires of trials strip away all the impurities in our faith and they leave us with a faith that is proven to be real and precious. And don't miss what Peter says here about that. Do you see that he calls our proven and genuine faith more precious even than gold? I think that's a verse that I've casually read over this week that stopped me in my tracks. Peter takes the most valuable earthly thing he can think of. I mean, something that's of value in every culture and every age. Gold is always precious. 
And he takes the most valuable thing he can think of and he says, real tested faith in Jesus is even more valuable than that. More precious than gold. So I wonder this morning, is your faith that precious to you? Is it precious? Is your faith in Jesus more valuable to you than the greatest earthly treasure? And if it's precious, what are you doing to protect it? How are you guarding your trust in Jesus so that no other trust intrudes and takes his place? Because that's what we do to something precious, right? If you had a block of gold, you wouldn't just leave it sitting on your living room coffee table. It'd be under, like you would guard it, you'd protect it so that nothing could take it away. So what are we doing to protect our faith? But if you have something precious, if you have this gold, if you have a treasure, you don't just want it to guard it, you want to grow it, right? You want more, you, want to, you invest and you want to see it multiply. So if our faith is more precious than any earthly treasure, what are you doing to grow it? How are you investing to increase the precious wealth of your faith? As I ponder that this week, I, I fear that too many of us are satisfied with the amount of faith we have, but always looking for ways to increase our gold. We, we tell ourselves, yeah, yeah, I think I'm doing fine when it comes to things of the Lord. Like, I, I'm good. Yeah, it could always be better, but I'm, I'm satisfied with how things are with Christ. Oh, man, I don't have this. I'd love to buy that. If I could just get this raise, if we could afford to do that, if I could, if I, maybe if I could pick up another job or do a side hustle over here, get something a little bit more. We're satisfied with what we have in faith. But we're looking for ways to get more gold. We think, I'm good with faith. And so we easily start to do things like, you know, we, maybe we just skip church. I had a long week. I'm tired there's something else going on the night before. I'm good with Jesus, though. It doesn't really matter. We start skipping church. We start skipping time of being with other believers for reasons that we would never skip work. What is that? Doesn't that say something about the value we're assigning to gold and our faith? If we're truly convinced that our real proven faith is more precious than gold, shouldn't we flip the equation and be satisfied with how much gold we have, but always be looking for ways to increase our faith? Saying, oh, what else can I do? Who, who can I talk to? What can I read? What can I listen to? Where can I get time alone with the Lord to pray and seek his face? When can I just gather with other believers to talk about him? What can I do to grow and guard my faith in Jesus? Friends, let's value our faith rightly. And let's just not value our faith rightly. Let's value each other's faith. I want to see your faith as precious and do everything I can to guard it and grow it. And I want you to do that for me. Why? Because our faith is more precious than gold. But why? Why is our proven and purified faith so precious? That brings us to the fifth thing Peter tells us about our suffering. The fifth thing we learn about our trials is that they are worth it. They're worth it. Why? 
because these trials forge a faith that will one day bring great rewards. Verse 7 says, We've been grieved by trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. At the end of the path of suffering, friends, is praise and glory and honor. And here's the amazing part, is that this praise and glory and honor is for us. Hear this. Not in a way that robs praise and honor and glory from God, but in a way that reflects his glory and praise and honor in us and our faith. All our trials, all our sufferings, they're doing something. Every hard thing you go through, every moment of suffering you experience as a Christian is proving and purifying our faith so that when Jesus Christ is revealed, God will look at you and say, you trusted me. Even when you suffered, you trusted me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's why we rejoice even though we suffer. Because every trial is brief, necessary, and is working for our good, both proving and purifying our faith for that day when Jesus, our living hope, is revealed and we're welcomed into our indestructible inheritance. Now we need to be clear. Joy doesn't deny the pain of suffering. If it didn't hurt, it would not be suffering. The second is just easy and happy and there's no pain. It ceases to be suffering. We're not talking about that. We're not, we're not simply closing our eyes and pretending that suffering isn't painful. So as we go through it, we don't just say, oh, what pain? I don't see it because I'm not looking at it. No, no, no. By faith, we look through our pain and beyond our pain to the joy that's coming. We imitate our Savior and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus knew he would suffer many things and be crucified. He, he told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer he knew what lay ahead. That's why he prayed in the garden so fervently. And yet he endured it. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And now as his followers, we walk in his footsteps. The Christian life, Paul tells us, is one that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are grieved by various trials, but even though we are, we rejoice as we always look to what's coming at the revelation of Jesus. Which brings us to the next points. Because after Peter mentions the revelation of Jesus at the end of verse 7, he then talks about how we respond to Jesus now, before he's revealed. So even though we walk by faith and not by sight, we see two things are true about those who belong to Christ. First, even though we have not seen him, we love him. 
I just want to pause and linger there for a minute. What does that mean? What does it mean to love Jesus? Loving Jesus means more than simply holding to certain facts about him. It means having real affections for him. Loving Jesus means delighting in him. It means cherishing him as our greatest desire. It means prizing him as our greatest treasure. It's adoring all that he is and admiring all that he's done. Loving Jesus means savoring his splendor, glorying in his goodness, and marveling in his mercy. It's more than simply knowing him intellectually. It's enjoying him. It's wanting more of him. It's feeling the ache of not currently being with him and longing for the day we will get to see him. But as Peter says, we may not have seen Jesus yet, but oh, how we love him. How could we not love the one who loved us and gave himself for us? How could we not love the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood? We love Jesus because he first loved us. And friends, he loved us when we were oh so unlovable. He showed his love and that when we were still his enemies, following our own sinful hearts, Christ died for us. We sang earlier, how free and costly was the love displayed upon the cross. While we were dead in untold sin, the sovereign purchased us. He loved us despite our unloveliness. It's free. It wasn't earned. It's not deserved. It's free. And yet it wasn't free to him. It cost him his life, the precious blood of Christ. And even now, It wasn't just that he loved us in the past. Even now, though we fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing, and we are his forevermore. So that as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he is indeed interceding for us. Because he loves us. Because he wants us to have what he bought for us. And this is why we love him. Because he made us and saved us and keeps us and sustains us. We love him because he is strong and kind and good and gentle and holy. We love him because he is infinitely lovely and worthy of all our affections. So simple question for all of us this morning. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Not do you know who he is, Not do you believe a certain set of facts or truths about him. Even the demons believe and shudder. But when you know those things about him, do they move your heart? Do they warm your heart to love him, to delight in him, to savor all that he is for you? I hope you do. And if not, friends, it's really simple. Ask him to give you that love for him. As we said earlier, he loves to hear our cries. And he loves to answer the prayer for more love for him. 
Peter goes on then to say that even though we do not now see Jesus, we believe in him. In other words, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now most likely, I think Peter has a scene from his past in mind here. See, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. Remember, they were in the room, the doors were locked, and suddenly he was there. Except one guy was missing, right? Thomas wasn't there. So the others, when Thomas comes back, they tell Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. He he, he did what he said he would do. He's trustworthy. He's real. He says, I hear you, but I refuse to believe unless I can see for myself. So, in his compassion, Jesus appeared again. This time when when Thomas was there. And when Thomas saw him, he cried out, my Lord and my God. But listen to what Jesus told him in John 20. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, those who Peter writes to here, they they hadn't seen Jesus. And us today, we don't see Jesus now. But we see that we are blessed because we believe in him even though we don't see him. We trust him even when we can't see all that we wish we could see. As we walk through these various trials, we trust him even though we can't always see how he's using this trial right now. We trust him even though we can't see how this will ever work out for my good. Though we do not now see him, we believe in him. And we don't just believe, he says we rejoice. And when do we rejoice? We rejoice right now. Right now, not just someday in the distant future. Not just once all the hard things are behind us. Not just when we see Jesus. We rejoice right now because the hope of our future stretches back into our present. And as our hearts lean forward, longing for the day when our sure hope in Jesus is present with us our living hope reaches back to us today and holds us tight and when our living hope grabs a hold of our longing hearts what happens is a joy that's so good and so glorious we don't have words to explain it peter says we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory in other words there are no words for this joy and i loved how one writer described this joy this week He compared this joy, trying to explain this joy, to trying to explain the brightness of a noonday sun to someone who's blind. How do you put into words the brilliance or the radiance of the sun to someone who has no eyes to see? I mean, just think about that. How would you describe for someone who has no categories even of brightness of brilliance, how do you help them understand what it is that you are seeing and experiencing? He said, there are no words to describe it, but for those of us who can see, we know the indescribable brightness when it shines on us. He said, you don't need words or arguments to prove to you that the sun is bright. Like, you don't go stand outside and say, all right, let me hear it. Explain to me 
why you think this is bright. You just walk outside and you feel the brightness on you. You know it for yourself. And you might not be able to explain it, but you've experienced it. And the joy we have in Jesus is the same way. If you are in Christ, you know this joy. And it feels impossible to put into words. If I were to ask you, tell me about your joy in Jesus, you'd be, I, 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 right? But even though you can't explain it, you've experienced this joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what Peter's after here. And then notice finally how this passage ends. This is all going somewhere. There's an outcome of our faith. There's a goal. Our trust in Jesus is leading to something. Or perhaps it'd be better to say our faith is leading somewhere. There's a destination that each day is bringing us closer to. For those who trust in Jesus, friends, we are headed home. The scattered people of God, the elect exiles, will be gathered together once and for all. The exiles will finally reach our homeland and our eyes will finally look on the Savior that we love and trust now when we don't see him. And in his presence, there will be fullness of joy that now we only know in part. Our faith will be made sight and we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This salvation will mean the end of all our trials. Think about that. There will be no more fear, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hurt, no more heartache, no more grief. Our salvation will be the end of all suffering. Peter himself tells us about this day in chapter 5 when he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's saying one day, after you suffered a little while, suffering will end. And God himself will do these things. Here's the great news, is that the salvation of our souls, it's more though than just the end of our suffering. It is the end of our suffering, but it's not only the end of our suffering, it's the beginning of full and forever joy. Sometimes we, we only talk about what won't be there. No sin, no death, no sorrow, and that is gloriously true, but we fail to think about what will be there. Full and forever joy. It will be the fulfillment of your deepest longings and the satisfaction of your greatest desires. God himself will restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen you to be in his presence forever. Can you even fathom that, friends? And that day is coming. And because it is, until then, we rejoice even though we suffer. We love and we trust Jesus even though we don't see him. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let us always say, it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? God, we delight in this good news. Lord, what better news could there be 
than what you have done for us and have prepared for us and one day will give to us to enjoy fully. Lord, we pray that you would use these truths to shape us here and now. Help us to be people that have an even though kind of joy. That when we leave here and there's kids who dis- disobey, there's plans that don't work out, there's house projects that are harder than we think, there's a meeting tomorrow morning that goes south, there's a doctor's appointment that doesn't go the way we hoped. Lord, when those things come, would we rejoice even though they come? And Lord, even though we can't see our Lord Jesus right now, would you help us to love him? Would you help us to trust him? And would you help us to long for the day when we will see him and know that until then, and even when he comes, when the sky shall be rolled back like a scroll, when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so, it is well with our souls. Make that true and help us to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.